0: Everything begins at the head. After all, isn't that where we typically first look when we're looking at a body? The position of the head, the size of the head, the expression on a head. When a large dog approaches you, what are you evaluating? How he holds his head. The look in his eyes, the snarl in his mouth. When evaluating a creature, you can tell so much by carefully evaluating the head. There's reason for that. The head leads the body. If a cobra is pointed away from you, you feel much more comfortable than if the head is pointed towards you. If it's going to strike with its body, the head is going to lead. Regardless of the creature, the head controls the body. Even if you're looking at the business end of a horse, you're concerned about what that animal was thinking at its head. It's no surprise that the Apostle Paul places so much emphasis in Colossians describing the head of the body of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 18, he said, Jesus is the head of the body the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Your perception towards the head is going to affect your disposition towards the remainder of the body. Indifference toward the head results in a diminishing significance toward the body. The Apostle Paul had a tremendous amount of respect for the head of the church, Jesus Christ. For this reason, he has a comparable amount of concern for the remainder of the body. The idea of a body here is simply a metaphor, a visual representation to help us understand how the church functions. The church, or body of Christ, is described in Scripture repeatedly as a spiritual body. There is an anticipated connection between all the members of the body. Though you and I aren't physically connected or hinged together, as Christians, we are spiritually connected. And if you and I are spiritually connected to the head, which is Jesus Christ, we should be moving in the same general direction and have similar goals. First Corinthians chapter twelve verses eleven to fourteen describes this spiritual body. It says, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though there are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. Last week at the end of chapter 1, we learned how Paul was determined to serve Christ's spiritual body. His ministry of service was in the role of an apostle. His enormous respect for the head now causes him great concern for the remainder of the body in chapter 2. Before we begin this text, we need to understand the spiritual body of the church is a genuine living organism. It exists in the spiritual realm. You might say, that's crazy. I'm just not going to believe any of that hocus-pocus spiritual realm, spiritual body stuff. If I can't see it, I won't believe it. But the living spiritual organism of the church is absolutely alive. Life does not originate from physical matter. Life comes from God's spirit. Without a spirit, there's only flesh and bone to a body. It's dead. If you have never witnessed, or if you ever witnessed a person pass away in a hospital, you know that person is not physical matter. They're there one minute, and the next moment they've passed into eternity. Yet the physical body remains. An individual is instead an eternal soul created by God who happens to inhabit a spiritual body, or a physical body. When I went to my father's funeral last November... Of course, it was an emotional event. I was grieved to lose my dad. But I was not without hope. I wasn't traumatized. When Rita and I looked into the casket, it was very clear to me that my father wasn't there. It was not him. There was only physical matter. And dad's spirit had inhabited that for a season. And now his spirit is living with Jesus Christ. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. The body of a person is very important. You were created to dwell in a physical body, but you eternally exist as a spirit and a soul. The Hebrew term in the Bible for spirit is ra, translated often as breath, or wind. In the creation account of Genesis chapter 2, the Bible says, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, that is matter. And God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. You are not living because you have a body made of flesh and bone and blood and tissue. You are living because God breathed spiritual life into you. You are a spiritual living organism. You cannot see the spirit, but your body functions only because of the presence of the spirit. It is similar with the spiritual body of Christ. There are many members, you and I, that we can physically see, but this is just living or just the matter. It's just the physical and material. The church is alive not because of matter, but because it is a living spiritual organism of connected and redeemed people of God. Christ's church is a spiritual body, and it is alive. It is a bona fide living organism. Paul is incredibly concerned about it. Partly because... He loves the head of the body. Of course he's going to love the body itself, which is the church, you and me. In Colossians chapter 2, in your text today, verse 1, Paul writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. Paul is addressing now the topic of the broader church. He's concerned about their health and the vitality of Christ's body. This isn't about just one local church in Colossae in this passage. Paul's referencing Laodicea as well. Laodicea was a few miles down the road, but it was interconnected with Christ's spiritual body. It was also attached to the head, just as the members at Colossae. Friends, in the spiritual realm, distance doesn't matter. Whether twelve miles down the road in Laodicea or twelve hundred miles across the sea to Rome, where Paul is writing this letter, physical separateness does not equate to spiritual separateness. The spiritual members of the body of Christ are all linked to the head. Paul is concerned about those members he has not seen. Is there anyone here that Paul has not seen? Have we seen Paul? He's concerned. You and I can understand that he's concerned because we're genuinely concerned about Christ's body as well. Those who are suffering persecution in parts of the world... To the corners of the earth, people are suffering for Jesus Christ. Why are we concerned about them? Because we're spiritually joined to the same body. You don't have to see these members to be concerned. Paul hadn't seen the Colossians, but he had learned they were being challenged and confronted by false doctrines. Paul wasn't concerned just about them, but about everyone who had not seen his face. That includes us. Is there anybody here that needs hope and encouragement from the Apostle Paul? I know I do. We are part of the same spiritual body that Paul has been part of. And his message continues to provide encouragement and lives on today through the Holy Word of God. We are different members of the body, living in different ages of the church, but our needs are the same as Colossae. We need spiritual enrichment. We need spiritual nourishment. And we need spiritual warmth and affection. Paul provides the source of these essential components in verse 2. He says he wants, quote, our hearts to be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Spiritual uh, encouragement is first a result, Paul says, of being knit together in love. This term for love is agape, It's a term that's most commonly associated with deep appreciation for and regard for God. We're knit together and love other members of the body, Scripture says, because He first loved us. But Paul does not stop there. He says our unity and our being knit together and coming together is not only for love's sake, You and I don't assemble together on the Lord's Day simply to express love. We come together to learn about love. Why? Learning about God's love and Christ in the Bible answers life's hardest questions. That's what most people want to know, right? Why are we here? Is there an afterlife? Is God real? Is there any hope apart from this physical existence that, to be quite honest, stinks much of the time? These are the questions that plague society. People don't just want to be loved. People want to know why we love. Love, to have any lasting value in our lives, must be based upon something factual and concrete. Hollywood doesn't tell people to worry about the reason for love. They just want you to love. But that doesn't answer why. The 60s was love generation. But it all fell flat. People went home, strung out on drugs, financially broke, with health destroyed. All as a result of an unfilled search to discover and practice love. Love must be based on something factual and concrete. It needs to be intellectually satisfying. The feeling of love plainly is not enough to satisfy the human spirit. Paul says, I'll give you something to base your love on. The King James renders verses 2 and 3, being knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding "...to the acknowledgment of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." The answers to all life's questions and the most intriguing mysteries of love are hidden. I would say stored away in what Paul describes as treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That treasure is the Bible. These treasures are hidden or stored in the Bible. God's precepts and His glorious kingdom are described as a treasure waiting for you. Proverbs 7, verse 1 says, My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live and my teaching as the apple of your eye. Jesus said in Matthew 13, verse 44 The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. All knowledge about love and the reasons we love and the results of God's love are explained directly on the pages of the Bible. God's Word is a treasure. It's in the form of a gift. It's provided to you to be unwrapped, to be discovered, and to be enjoyed. This is the book where we come to understand and appreciate love. You might ask the question, So which is it? Is this wisdom hidden, or is it stored? The text says it's hidden, but the answer is both. This is the second time Paul mentions a mystery that has been revealed to those of us in Christ's church. Christian theologians who understand the development of theological thought and study are inside this book, and they also are convinced as they review it, that Paul's statements are the early suggestions there was a cult forming in Colossae. The Colossian church was being attacked by one of the earliest manifestations of a heresy known as Gnosticism. Gnostics were a cult that believed and taught that God was good, but all matter was evil. In order to get spiritual and closer to God, You had to reject all things that were physical and material. They would have also asserted that God would have never taken the form of a man in Jesus Christ. Flesh is evil, they would say. They had a problem, however, which is that the Bible doesn't teach that. So the Gnostics claimed that there was a higher level of mystical knowledge above Scripture that was necessary to become enlightened and eventually for salvation. They would add speculation between the lines of Scripture and assert there was a level of spirituality and salvation that only a superior few could achieve. The result was not unity among the brethren, which the Bible calls for, but class division. Concepts of haves and have-nots is not an archaic and outdated threat to the church. A mystical level of biblical spirituality has been proposed in books and movies such as The Da Vinci Code. They promote the idea that really smart people need to break the Bible code to find out all the secrets that are hidden within. You might say, well, those movies are just a little ridiculous. They are. But there is a popular movement today in evangelicalism called trajectory hermeneutics. Trajectory hermeneutics asserts we can't really know what Jesus or the disciples would have thought about the behavior of modern society 2,000 years after they lived. So these people study and manipulate the scriptures with the intent of projecting the apostles' thought. 2,000 years in the future. What the Apostle Paul would have thought today if he had lived another 2,000 years. Folks, that's filling in between the lines. In addition, churches have been practicing class warfare since the time of Corinthians. They elevated certain spiritual gifts above others, which continues in the church today. There are denominations that demand that if you're going to be spiritual... It must be demonstrated by the speaking in tongues. Other movements claim that if you uh, are willing and have enough faith, you'll be guaranteed that you'll be healed. That makes it pretty easy to identify the unspiritual people in the church. They're the ones that don't get healed. So the question remains, are these mysteries in the Bible at all hidden? And I would answer yes and no. They are hidden from the unbeliever because they're only revealed through the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 14 says, concerning the spiritual truths of Scripture, Now we Christians have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But the natural man, that's simply describing the unsaved man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised." Unbelievers don't understand how the Spirit teaches us through the Word of God. The unbeliever has a veil over their hearts and to spiritual things. So they can read the Bible over and over and possibly gain some intellectual understanding. But their hearts can't receive the spiritual things. These mysteries to them are hidden but the Scriptures are also a storehouse of wealth and knowledge and wisdom to the believer. We get it. It may take prayer and study, but the Holy Spirit will reveal His mysteries of the Word of God to those who will seek Him. Scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 again, But it is written, I hath not seed, nor ear heard, Neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God has revealed them to us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deepest things of God. These verses are sometimes used to describe a scene in heaven that is yet to be understood or discovered. But that's not what the text says. It says in the past tense, God has revealed these things to us through his spirit. This was a prophecy of Isaiah that is fulfilled, Paul says, in the spiritual Christian life. It is identified as having occurred at the present time in the life of a believer. This passage describes a phenomenon of the spiritual Christian life, where God reveals himself through his word, to those who diligently seek him. The question we have to ask is, why? Why has God illumined the hearts and minds of his redeemed people with this spiritual knowledge and wisdom that are supplied through his word? Why in these last days of the church does God teach the believer by his indwelling Holy Spirit? Paul tells us exactly why in verse 4. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. God wants to protect and preserve you. Satan's servants want to rob your confidence in Christ, they want to sap your motivation, they want to distract you from your mission of the gospel. So they try to knock you off balance and send you down a theological rabbit trail. They offer persuasive arguments, or some translations say enticing words. The NIV calls them fine-sounding arguments. The enemy wants you to question what you believe so that you will hesitate to share. Their arguments sound good, but they aren't based on Scripture. And they are based on speculation and reading between the lines. They would like you to question if there is something that you missed. Paul says, no. Do not be beguiled. Do not be deceived. What they are offering you, he says, is not based on Scripture. It is a delusion. The apostles did not offer fine arguments or deceptive talk. They offered us a testimony and an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him, By the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance, Peter says, made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter went on to say in that passage, No prophecy of scripture was ever made by any act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Ghost spoke from God. You can trust Scripture. Combating fine arguments and false religion is one of the primary reasons Paul is writing to Colossae. He wants them to remain confident in who Christ is and in what they believe. Paul wants you to remain confident as well. So how is was Colossae doing? To this point, pretty well. Verse 5 says, For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the, sp- the stability of your faith in Christ. Getting back to the anatomy of a spiritual body, Paul says, When I pray for you and when I'm concerned about you, it's as effective as if I'm standing right there beside you. Paul has learned from their friend and church founder Epaphras that Colossae has been standing strong. And this makes Paul rejoice. He doesn't want to see any members of the body distracted, captivated, or enticed into wasting their energy on superficial spiritual suggestions that aren't real and don't have any basis in Scripture. He wants them to flourish because this is when Christ is most magnified when his church is growing and reaching lost souls with the gospel. Bad theology can suck the life right out of a church. And Paul's going to continue to expose false religion throughout the remainder of chapter 2. But Colossae's standing firm. Paul says that he learned of their good discipline and the stability of their faith. Both of these terms, discipline and stability, were military terms. They provide an imagery of solidarity and strength that comes from forming a line of soldiers in battle. The Colossians were linked arm in arm with their shields locked together in battle formation against the intrusion of the enemy. He's encouraged them, encouraging them to remain strong. And in the next verses, Paul is going to expose the enemy. We'll talk more about them next week. Paul is going to discredit their false religious systems. The apostle is going to dismantle the enemy's weaponry. The enemy thought they were going to get at the Colossian church by claiming they had a higher spirituality and a superior knowledge. They hoped to sap the confidence of, of the church and lead them astray to follow after the false teachers. Paul says, no you don't. I love this body of Christ and I don't care if they're a thousand miles away I'm going to do my best to defend them. Folks, I know you love Jesus Christ. I, re- I realize you recognize His deity, His majesty Do you love his body just as much? Paul did. Will you stand firm in defending the church against false teachers, deception? And I mean not just being concerned about the body that meets here at 1120 Par Drive. Remember, Paul mentions Laodicea already. There were 12 miles down the road, but just as important as members of the body of Christ. You and I need to be concerned about the health of like-minded churches down the road because we're spiritually connected. We need to pray for them, and when given an opportunity, encourage them. They aren't the enemy. They aren't the competition. They are precious to Jesus. We need to rejoice when we see other churches flourishing and praise God that the name of Jesus Christ is being held high. Are you a member of Christ's body? Perhaps you've never trusted in Christ. You may have never envisioned yourself as a sinner in need of a Savior. You might believe you can go it alone on your own, and you don't need to be in Christ's church. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus wants you to be a part of His body. And the church is a winning team. In fact, in the end, the only winning team. Jesus made a bold statement when Peter exposed Jesus' Jesus' true identity. Peter said of him, you remember, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied concerning this foundational statement by Peter, Upon this rock, meaning upon your statement, Peter, that I am the Christ, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not be able to overpower it. Friends, Jesus Christ is the only one who ever defeated death and left an empty grave behind. The only safe place to be on this planet when hell comes knocking at your door is in Christ's body, the church of the living God. Today we have three individuals who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and they've decided they want to express their loyalty to Jesus through water baptism. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 informs us, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. So we're saved from the penalty of our sins through faith alone and through grace alone. And Hebrews 11 affirms every believer of every generation has been saved by faith. But our Christian walk and responsibility doesn't simply end at salvation. We are told we are supposed to go out and make disciples and proclaim our faith by word and by deed. An important component of our personal proclamation is water baptism. In baptism, the individual is expressing to friends and family and to the world that they believe what the scriptures say about Jesus, God, and sinful man. By being baptized by water today, they are publicly professing their devoted loyalty to Jesus Christ. I've met with each of these individuals. Having heard them articulate their faith and express their desire to be water baptized And they each have made a short video message they want to be played for you. When you're finished, we invite you to join us back at the baptistry where the baptisms will occur. Will you pray with me?